thank you all very much. Thank you for being here. Hi there. I like that. <laughs> Bless you. I get to talk about a subject that's very dear to my heart. But I thought I would start today by um, telling a story. It's actually a story that I experienced on my way through the Cedar Rapids airport uh, as I was coming into town. And I put it on my blog uh, with these uh, photos. So I'm just going to read this to you and we'll talk about the story. The Cedar Rapids Airport is a small one. There's no double doors to pass through and route to ground transportation and baggage claim. One just strolls past a security guard who is yawning in his chair. As I do that the other day, I'm in Iowa to teach for the Iowa Summer Writing Festival, I notice quite a crowd has gathered. I'm always struck by the blondness that is Iowan, and this group is no exception. Several towhead children bounce in excitement, a few parents, a number of blonde teenagers texting. A young lady stands at the very front of the group. Her makeup is polished and her hair blown dry. Beside her is a woman of about 40 whose eyes are already red with tears. It makes me recall the soldier that rode a few rows ahead of me on the plains of Houston, wearing the strange camouflage of our recent desert wars, more pink and blue than the old tan and brown. There he is, someone squeals. He comes around the corner. He's not carrying a bag. His arms swing. He is the epitome of soldier, with his buzzed blonde hair and his excellent posture. His eyes scan the waiting group and alight on someone. I can't see over the heads of those around me, but I imagine it's his mother with her red eyes. She must be holding her arms out to him. But it is not to the older woman that he heads. It is to the young lady beside her. There is a moment of protocol. The girlfriend, such must she be, wonders for a moment that she is to get the first hug. But it's clear that it's to her he's heading, and as she steps into his arms, he buries his face in her neck. His hands grip her waist, her hips. His arms slide all the way around her. Almost, I can hear him groan. He steps back, back his face lighted. He looks as if he might laugh. He looks as if he might cry. And he sinks to one knee holds out a hand. The crowd sighs as one. I am not the only one who's paused on the way to whatever is next. The security guard is no longer yawning. <laughs> <laughs> From somewhere, the soldier has produced a ring. He holds it up between thumb and forefinger. There are a few more squeals, quickly hushed. He takes hold of one of the girlfriend's hands. She presses the other to her lips. I can't see her face, only her shining hair. His voice is low, but it carries. She doesn't say anything that I can see. Never taking his eyes off her, he slides the ring onto her finger. Will you? At her quiet yes, we all applaud. He stands. She has her left hand up, gazing at the ring on her finger. I see her realize that this is not the moment to assess the ring. <laughs> With a little shake of her head, she throws her arms around him. He lifts her up, her knees bend, and her feet rise in what we all hope is joy. About this time, I remember to get my iPhone out of the purse. The resultant photo doesn't manage to capture any of this. Yes, it does. Later, waiting for our luggage, I congratulate them and ask if I can take their picture. They oblige. A few moments later, he joins the half dozen of us waiting to grab our luggage as soon as it appears. A young boy, nephew or cousin or little brother, waits with him. I'm looking for a box of books, the soldier for his duffels, one of which almost immediately nudges its way through the rubber flats, flaps above the conveyor belt. He lifts it, places it beside him. It's heavy, he says to the little boy, who doesn't care that it's as big as he is and four times as heavy. He persists, and the soldier helps him get his arms through the straps. It can be carried like a knapsack. The boy teeters, his face red with effort and pride. It looks as if he would pull on his back like a bug in its shell, or that he will fall face down with the huge duffel covering from him from head to toe. The soldier hefts the second duffel off the belt. Let's go, he says. The boy manages to step forward with the pack on his back, grinning. He steadies the boy with a hand to his head and guides him toward the waiting family. Let's go home.
she got that ring in there. <laughs> and then... So that's my question. I can imagine that this young man was in some terrible, dark place in the desert wars, uh, that somewhere in those woods, so to speak, he grappled with what he wanted with the rest of his life, and he came home with that ring in his pocket, ready to ask that question. And maybe that is, on one level, the end. But it could just as easily be, oh, don't go forward, please. Stay there. Thank you. Oops. Well, there's the woods. Um, it could just as easily be the beginning. This is a story we could start with this moment. And that what we are going to go forward into will be the travails of a marriage. That with this, perhaps, moment of there's something there that we're going to find out about her, or that wonderful moment when she seems to have taken possession of her man with that ring. Little things that, to my, I admit, slightly cynical eye, struck me as I was watching this incredibly, incredibly romantic moment. What is their future? And that story schooled ahead of me in a way that I found very fascinating. What point of view might we occupy? Would it be the soldier and his, oh my gosh, life at home is really boring compared to my time in battle with my friends, or hers? Like, um, gosh, I just wish he didn't snore. Or maybe the little nephews, whose actually story it is that his incredibly beloved and, and cherished uncle, or whatever he might be, has feet of play. So we don't know. And in this regard, I think we're looking at what story gives us. What do we want from story are some really essential things to ask. All of us, whether those of us here in this room, whether we're working on a piece of fiction or a piece of memoir, or any kind of prose piece, are asking ourselves, how do we pull the reader through the story? How do we ask them to come with us? It's been my um, great pleasure in the last few years. I proposed a course at Franklin and Marshall College. I teach in the English department. I asked if, I could, if they would like on their, on their roster of courses a course called Introduction to Myth and Fairy Tale. And they were just delighted to take it on. I just I very much appreciate my colleagues and my administration there. They were just fabulous about it. And of course, uh, halfway through the um, putting the syllabus together for the first time, I thought to myself, whose bright idea was it to cover myth and fairy tale in the same semester? Because they're both so vast. And I thought, in my innocence and ignorance, actually, um, that they were they were somewhat similar. And of course, to some degree, they are. And we're going to talk about those similarities in a bit. But they're also quite different. Fairy tales seem to me, more, the more I study them, and I quote the wonderful scholar Marina Warner here, she says the more she studies fairy tales, the more they appear to represent the worst travails of human life and nature. You take something like Hansel and Gretel, and you realize that it's a real reflection of a time when you had too many children, or even if you had children at all, sometimes you could not feed them. So one of the things you might do is say, rather than kill them, you might take them to the woods and abandon them in the hopes that they might make their own way in some miraculous fashion, rather than you're being actually responsible for their deaths. Um, and that's, of course, that there's the gingerbread house and all the sugar and all the, what the witch does and fattens them up and all that stuff. Are, would have been fantastic hopes for quite a number of children in their time, and that they managed to get home to their family, um, probably a, a, in many cases an improbable thing as opposed to a happy ever after thing. You look at a story such as Beauty and the Beast, and you realize that it is very much reflecting a situation in which women were often chattel, and they were given to the highest bidder, and often that highest bidder, their father would say, you need to go with, you know, Mr. 74-year-old man here, even though you're 16, because um, uh, I need money. And so there was a great, there's a great thing in that about preparing for the beast and being ready to 
see if there might be a beauty inside that beast. And that's filial devotion, of course, and Christian values are very much reflected in that effort, the patriarchy in general. I think that's one of the most astounding things about fairy tales, how much they are bucking against the patriarchy many, many times, just trying to write these stories that illustrate what people are up to. Myths, on the other hand, it seems like fairy tales kind of respond to a kind of um, societal level things that they're trying to address. Myths seem to me to, um, Christine quoted my book the other day when I write about according to me, which is, you know, what you get when you have someone up talking to you. So, according to me, but I think I'm backed up by quite a number of thinkers. Myths seems to address far larger issues by and large. Often we're dealing with issues of creation. Where do we come from? We're, listening, we're dealing with issues of deity. Um, some writers talk about the fact that how a culture creates its gods and, the, and it, what it feels that it's descended from are metaphors for a sense of parenting. So we have something that's very different in, say, Native American culture with spiders and weaving than we do in, say, Greek mythology where we've got fathers who are constantly trying to kill their sons and the sons vanquishing them over and over and over again, the Oedipus myth being just one of those many stories. And finally, we have in the stories of myth, we have many stories of heroes. And probably many of you uh, are very aware or somewhat aware of um, Joseph Campbell's ability and um, marvelous uh, conflation of those stories into what he's called the hero's journey. And I think for our purposes here today, there's something quite wonderful about looking at those things. Um, when we go with a hero on a journey, and a hero or a heroine, a protagonist, um, whoever it might be, we are um, descending with them into the woods. Because almost always such a story, any of our stories, needs the protagonist to go into some darkness of some sort. It's either literal, Snow White goes into the woods, Hansel and Gretel go into the woods, or it's... Um, there can also be a sense of, um, no, go back. I have to go back over here. My wonderful friend Matt, who's so useful to me, trying to set me up for this today. Go back, please. Thank you. Here is, I googled Underworld and got some movie called Underworld, and all the, the images were people and So I, I, I googled cave. I felt that was, that looked Hades-like to me, not, not, not hell but kind of, you know, some place where Persephone might not be too happy to be um, um, kept for four months out of the year. So um, we have to descend into darkness in some way with our protagonist. And either it's a literal place, and sometimes in our stories we can make that place literal even as what we're discussing is psychological. And often, of course, those descents are psychological. It seems to me one of the things we're attempting to do when we write our tales is, and when we read our ta uh, tales of others, is uh, what Aristotle talked about as, and I think it's a beautiful thing, that when, say, Oedipus um, pokes out his own eyes with the what, pins from his wife's dress because he's realized that uh, he's married his mother, um, that those are things that we don't have to do, we in the world, we can see what disaster that is if you do it. So sometimes we read in order to go, I think Stephen King's got this, it's like, let's go to some really dark places that take us into really scary places and make our hearts pound and make us think we're there too, but we can wake up, as a friend of mine said, and put the book in her freezer compartment of her refrigerator because she just doesn't even want the effect it creates on her to be possible. Um, and so that psychological torment, tormenting, and we often read for those sorts of not to be tormented, but to be excited and to be thrilled. Um, we want to take our readers there, and our readers go with us because they'd rather not go there in person. They are happy to go along in their armchair with us. So that's part of our job, too, is to take our readers with us to those places, um, um, one way or the other. The f similarities, um, or the differences in fairy tale and myth are interesting. Bruno Bettelheim, in his wonderful book, the uses of enchantment um, articulates these where fairy tale often has a huntsman, a princess, Jack, a young boy, 
um, and the locales might be a hovel, a castle, a forest. When we get to myths, we are almost always dealing with named people and people who are in high position. They're gods, they're demigods, at the very least they're heroes. And they're always named. Antigone, Orestes, Iphigenia, right? We always have people that are um, um, Odysseus, Penelope. And they are in places, Argos, Thebes, Athens, Hades, Mount Olympus. They're in places that are named, that we, uh, we still have to use our imagination to get there, but they're not as sort of general and even, I would say, generic as, say, hovel or forest. So those are some um, definite similarities. And then, I mean, differences. And one of the final differences is that seems to me Fairy tales have kind of a single line of action. Like if we look at the story of the soldier coming home and it being the end when he says, will you marry me? And she said, yes. It's a little bit like we followed that guy through his world, yeah, a little bit whatever we can invent or imagine, in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever else he might have been. And his homecoming is simple and it's happy. I would say that fairy tales are often not happy at all at the end. But there is a, always a great sense of resolution that even sometimes the ending has not been the happily ever after at all. It's, that's my tale, I've told it, tell it, and now it's yours. That's when it's famous, like, you know, now it's yours to tell. Myths, on the other hand, um, are, I will call it, octopusian <laughs> in their, in the tendrils of stories that they have. Often we will meet one sense of people set of people and we discover that same set of people in a whole other myth. Or we meet, say, a great example is, um, it took me a while to realize that Oedipus, after he's married to Jocasta, and he has these daughters, Ismene and Antigone, and it turns out that Antigone is actually his sister, in addition to being his daughter, and then she shows up with him in Colonus when he's dying. And then when that happens, then all of a sudden she's the hero of that play that takes place in Thebes when she wants to bury her brother. And it took me a long time to realize those were the same Antigones, you know, that 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 woman had her own story that went through a, quite a lot of um, other stories. Uh, one of my favorites um, of these kind of octopusian tales is the fall of the house of Atreus, which I find to be a tremendous reflection of our own, how our own current culture came to be. In a way, it's, a, it's the, when our history came to be recorded, seems to me, why uh, Euripides and Aeschylus and Sophocles especially made those tales come to life, which is, as quickly as I can outline it, but it's very interesting, the Greek troops are trying to get to Troy. You may recall that Helen's been stolen by Paris. Agamemnon and Menelaus, Helen's husband, that is, Menelaus, are like getting all the troops together, but they can't sail because they're becalmed. And so it turns out they're becalmed because Agamemnon has killed a um, stag belonging to Artemis. And the only way they can solve this, says Artemis's um, high priest Colchis, is to kill Agamemnon's eldest daughter, Iphigenia. And so Iphigenia gets killed. Agamemnon goes off to war. Ten years later, he comes home. Clytemnestra, who's a matriarch par excellence, decides to kill him. And there's kind of reason she feels to kill him. She's still quite mad at him. Then Orestes, her son, decides to kill her. And then, and then Orestes gets chased by the mean old Furies, which are this remnant of an ancient matriarchal culture. They chase him all the way to Athens, where he goes, Apollo, help! And so Apollo helps him, and basically that court case decides that women are nearly um, vessels, that to kill your mother is not matricide, because the father is the, I think the quote is from one translation, the father is the stallion who mounts, and the mother is only a vessel. So you can see that an interesting sense of, of what history might have been with the matriarchy that Clytemnestra represented, and the shift over to the patriarchy that came in with you know, Apollo's fine, uh, the Apollonian instincts that we still carry on and still honor in our society became very important. And the other huge part of that big story is that law and order entered as opposed to revenge. So very interesting.
cultural things out of that huge myth. And we meet those people all over the place. Clytemnestus and Orestes and Agamemnon are in dozens of different places. So these are stories and plots that we can examine for our own purposes. I think that plot can be um, is famously summed up in two essential ways. Someone goes on a journey. A stranger comes to town. Ultimately, I think it's one journey, uh, one plot, and that is we go on a journey. I think we have to go on a journey with our main character, and that is our job, is that we have to take them from the, unknown, from the known to the unknown. They learn something, and they return. So these are the things that I thought we could, and the second ending of my soldier, so to speak, that I'm you know, reflecting on is what is his world if we only start with the proposal and the acceptance of marriage. It becomes a very different and I think more octopusian and maybe even mythic story if we start there and we have to tie in the wife and the mother-in-law with her red eyes or the mother of him who's like not happy that he's marrying her or whatever it might be, you know. So, um, you're not going to respond? So, both myth and fairy tale, there's a guy named Vladimir Kropp who has outlined the way that what fairy tales do, he calls them functions. And um, Joseph Campbell has outlined the steps of a hero's journey. But I think what I really love, and the similarity that I love to examine, is like I think there, one of the reasons I love walking into a Barnes & Noble or, or the virtual world of a bookstore on Amazon.com is that there are so many different books. There are so many different styles. The where you, I might find you in the bookstore might not be where I might find you in the bookstore. Where I might find myself in the bookstore. And what shelves we'll be examining and what we're looking for and what we want to read. And I think one of the great things when we're sitting at a conference such as this and working on our own writing is that we're all working on the book that we would like, presumably, to some degree to read so that we know that shelf, so to speak, that we would like to be found on. I don't mean necessarily genre but that we know the reader that we would like to have pick up our book, whether it's a romance, or whether it's a piece of speculative fiction, or it's a piece of historical drama, or it's a biography, or it's a memoir, or it's a piece of literary fiction, and literary fiction is just another genre, you know, so that we can have that sense of trying to satisfy those impulses of what we want to read with what we want to write. Um, so this uh, sense of um, beginning on our stories, and I kind of would like each of you, as I go through some of these steps and talk a little bit about them, to think about the story you yourself are working on, and a particular um, character that you have in mind, and just sort of think, am I taking advantage of some of these classic tropes that I could use for my own purposes? Not all of them. Uh, Vladimir Propp himself says this, he has 31 functions, he calls them. And he's very clear that not every story could possibly fulfill all of these, but he uses some of them. And similarly with the hero's journey, you don't necessarily do them, but this is the basic thing in which your protagonist is separated from the known and steps into the unknown. And that unknown can be many different things. It can be an actual world, of course, or it could also be simply some sense of his own, he never knew he could get into a jealous rage. And all of a sudden, he sees his wife with another man, and something's introduced to him that he did not know about himself. That's another form of the unknown. So um, one of Prop's things would say that sometimes um, there is a missing parent in the fairy tale. Often something is told to the, the hero, he calls them heroes in this fairy tale thing, uh, which the hero immediately goes, oh, well, I'm not going to do that. Great example is Jack and the Beanstalk. Whatever you do, you know, don't sell, don't, uh, sell the horse, uh, to, uh, the cow to anything. Bring, I mean, except come home with the money for the cow. And the first person he meets gives him those magic beans, and you know, then we have that story. Uh, the, the, in, that, that's violated is a very important part of the tale. A member of a family lacks something or needs something that the hero decides to go for. A seeker decides or agrees to go get it. In essence, the hero leaves home. So that's fairy tale. In the um, more of the Joseph Campbell world of hero's journey, which you can find anywhere, of course, is like there's usually a sense always in our stories, however we start our stories, we have to understand that there is a stasis 
there is a home that has some sort of something to it that is steady, even though it may not be necessarily likable. But something has to interrupt that to move our story forward. So that's that call to adventure. And often the protagonist or the hero will resist it. No, I don't want to go. I'm happy here. I'm content here. I'm afraid of what that might be, even though I'm not content here. Maybe he feels or she feels a restlessness in her soul about something, or something is basically compelling and forcing them to go. Um, something usually comes to the person's aid, and I think this is a very interesting thing to look at in our stories. Um, in the hero's journey, it's called supernatural aid, but it doesn't, of course, have to be. It can be a friend, an animal, a letter, a phone call, an amulet, you know, a sword, magic laser. It can be all kinds of things that might uh, come to our aid. And the hero moves out and crosses the first threshold. So that's one of our things, the departure. So this is sort of what we'd say the rising action in our plot sets that we want to do, is what are our characters up to that launch them into the long desert, some of us look at, known as the middle of the book, right? <laughs> so then we have, oops, there it is again. We have the initiation. And I think this word is really a fascinating word for this. I've always I've wondered about it. This is uh, Campbell's word, and I think it's partly because he's looking at heroes' journeys also as when, say, a young man um, is initiated into his tribe by being scarred by and <coughs> put into a pit with ants or whatever the things they do to make it be a man. Campbell often talks about the fact that when you go through such a transition that maybe a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah can do as well, is that you know you've made a transition to adulthood. There's something about that. You're forever changed, which is something to do with coming to be an adult. So um, in the um, initiation um, phase, I think it's interesting that those words actually mean an entrance or a beginning. It literally means going in. Both myth and fairy tale. In fact, I'll just say something like this. In Cinderella... Our launches, we understand that there was a man who had a wife and she died, and then there was, there was the pretty daughter, but then came the stepmother with her two daughters, and Cinderella was put to clean the cinders out, and there she is trying to make her way, and she understands there's a ball going on, but she can't go, um, and she's forbidden to go. And so this is the way her little um, story is launched, is that the grandmother, I mean, the stepmother throws lentils into the ashes and says, pick them out and then you can go. And the mother's, the ghost of the mother's birds come, or Walt Disney's squirrels come, and help her get them out again. And then she says, I can go, I can go. And then the stepmother throws more in, you know. So that's, we're getting that little sense. If we look at the story of, say, um, Iphigenia, from her point of view, that story I just started, you know, she's got a daddy, Agamemnon, that she knows loves her, and she's living up there in Argos, and then word comes that um, her dad, this is all from her point of view now, her dad has decided that she should marry Achilles. So she should come on down to Alice, where all the grand, enormous armies of Greece are massed, waiting for the wind to blow, and come meet her, uh, her new fiancé, Achilles. So that's her first step into the world. She goes, whoa, I'm going to go marry a family. That's from her point of view, right? So that's the first thing. The initiation phase is um, when, say, Cinderella um, uh, manages to get those things out of the, all those lentils out of the ashes. And I will just say, in pausing, too, reading a lot about fairy tales, is the whole issue of stepmother and stepdaughters was so real because so many women died in childbirth, and then men would marry again, for many, many reasons, of course. And of course, those stepmothers were trying to protect the rights of their child. So again, there's sort of real life stuff in that evil stepmother um, indication. Anyway, so there is she is, and the stepmother and the mother, and stepmother and the stepsisters have gone off to the ball. And then all of a sudden, there's Cinderella's own dress, and she's having a little, you know, nighttime of the soul there about what she's going to do. But she gets her little dress and her little shoes and her little coat, and she goes off to the ball. That's interesting, too. Cinderella has versions that are over 2,000 years old, and they run the gamut from China 
to Vietnam. I mean, it's unbelievable. This story has existed in every culture. Yeah? Well, we haven't even gotten there yet, have we? We're only at the beginning. So I will come to that, I promise. So we have Iphigenia now in her initiation phase. She's coming down into the world, and she's going to meet Achilles. And then she finds out that actually it's all a trick that her father intends to sacrifice her. And she's like, well, no, I'd rather not do that. Thank you very much. And there's a kind of crisis. And that's a great big threshold she's looking over. It's like, oh my god, from marriage to death, it's kind of different. Um, but the long intersection, and this is often, of course, the longest part of our books, where these initiation phases take place, is that she has to face, there's a wonderful, if lengthy, uh, movie uh, from Greece, Greek movie that has subtitles with Irene Pappas and other wonderful actors in it. Um, she has to face the fact that, or the truth, that she can either go willingly to her death or she can be dragged to her death. So she makes the, the inspection of her own soul, and I think one of the big steps of the initiation phase is that the protagonist or the hero has to grapple with something in his or her own nature and come to terms with it in a new way. They discover something about themselves they did not know before, and they are strengthened by it. Ideally, this is why we call it the hero's journey. But I think in all journeys that we're willing to read and hang out with, we have to have some nature of this going on. So if Iphigenia makes the choice to die willingly for what she perceives to be her country, because um, the men can therefore go on to Troy and kill a lot of people. But anyway, um, uh, that's her decision rather than to be dragged up the hill to where Colchis, the god, the, the, the priest of uh, Artemis, is waiting for her by his sacrificial table with his sharpened knife. So her step towards uh, the end of uh, what's going to be the return, in a way, is walking up that thing in the movie. It's so beautiful. As she's walking up there, this stillness that's been in the film, showing the absolute lack of wind, begins to change. And you see Agnes's hair begin to ruffle. Oh my God, it's awful. This is so moving. Um, so, all of this initiation phase is that into the woods. It's that underworld. It's whether we're actually physically going there, and often, as I say, we can reflect these movements in our works by using physical places that are dark, or using physical places that are dense, or hard to get through, impenetrable in some way. It can just be a door in a basement, or it can be in actual woods. And or we go with them psychologically, that we are des descending into some movement of the character where we're, where we're grappling, the character's grappling with something. It's particularly true in any memoir. You know those of you who are writing memoir, we have got to go down to that place where we tussled hardest in order to find what's going to be the third step is, um, <laughs> I'm going backwards now. Oh, I see. Oh, me and technology. But Matt told me how to solve it. He's my, he's my supernatural aid. <laughs> Departure, initiation. So here we see, by crossing the threshold, the protagonist's world has changed forever, and it's a mental journey that merges with a physical one that results in a spiritual revelation of purpose and self. So these are big things, but I think all of our characters need to move through something like this. Finally, there's the return. Now, these happen in different ways. Um, Prop, in his uh, examination of, um, of, uh, of fairy tale, talks a bit about um, how these returns happen, that there's often a magic flight to get him home. Sometimes he's not recognized. He often or she is often given a new wardrobe. <laughs> Finally, or takes a bath, um, things like that. Um, and we can see that with Cinderella on her return. You know, she goes through all her travails, and the man, the, the, he's, you know, her, her shoe sticks in the tar, and the prince comes out, and then the prince comes and looks at, this is actually the initiation phase, and the prince comes and looks at her, and all her sisters, and in the actual story, the sisters do 
me of just really shaping stories in such a particular way for our society. And I, my mom wouldn't let me go see the Disney versions when I was a little girl. I used to be so mad at her, but now I'm so glad. When I tried to go online and find images of Cinderella to show you, I had to actually eventually go find uh, Urchin. Then I tried to take it out altogether. Because all that's on Cinderella, only Disney can't find any other image for Cinderella. Same thing with Snow White. No other image, uh, unless you Google, you know, pretty girl with red hair, I mean, uh, red lips and black hair. I mean, it's ridiculous. Anyway, um, in the non-Disney versions, the versions that are told across many, many societies and over many, many um, centuries, the sisters, in some capacity or another, but in our tale here, the Grimm's tale, um, they are so determined to marry the prince that they have the mother carves their heel, the first sister's heel off to fit into the shoe. And then they're driving away, and a little bird, I'm not sure about the intelligence of this prince, this little bird comes along and says, hey, hey, you're dripping blood as you go down the road. So the prince goes, oh, this will never do. So back they go, and he drives the other sister, and she carves her toes off to get into the shoe. And once again, he goes, all right, I've got my bride now. And then again, the little bird says, so back she goes and he says, do you have someone here that might put on a shoe and comes, you know, a little dirty Cinderella and of course it fits. So that's the end of that initiation. She's going to go, she's returning now to a world that is going to be more in kind with the person that she is, which is gracious and loving and kind. So that's what the world she's going to enter. And in, um, so we've already done Iphigenia's case. And keep this all in mind because I'm going to ask you to be scribbling in a few moments about your own, perhaps, departures and um, initiations and returns. Return is very interesting where, um, again, the, 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 the gruesome version of um, Cinderella is the happily ever after part. There they are getting married, but some birds, those very handy birds come, and first they pluck out the left eye of one sister and the right eye of the other, and then they pluck out the right eye of the other sister and the left eye of the other sister until they're blind, and then the stepmother has to put on these red hot shoes and dance until she dies. <laughs> So as I say, fairy tales aren't always happy that they resolve. <laughs> you know, everybody's kind of taken care of by the animal. So, and in uh, and your point entirely when we return with the Iphigenia story, very interesting there. So she, because I love this about ancient Greek drama. You know, all of the violence happens off stage, which I like that. I'm not fond of violence. I'd just much rather see the person come in with the blood on their face rather than the which is not my pleasure. So um, she goes off over the mountainside, and then a messenger comes running in and says, she didn't die. A stag was put in her place, and she was lifted into the air and disappeared. Many scholars believe this isn't actual ending to this play, but it was put on because I think he had such an anger going on about how stupid Athens was being about war at that time that he had a very different ending. And it was about the degree to which they were willing to sacrifice their young man that he wrote that play. But, um, but in any case, that's the ending. And she shows up as a priestess to Artemis on the island of Taurus, and her, her lucky job is to kill the unsacrificed the unsuspecting tourists who happen on Taurus without a permission from Artemis. Her brother Orestes saves her, I guess. That's another play. Anyway, that's another ending. So there's various returns, uh, but the idea really of the Iphigenia story here is that she is so willing to give herself up to this large thing that's larger than she is, and she's had that lesson, that she reaches an enlightened one of the most interesting things to me about the return, which I find most fascinating, is that the hero or the protagonist has come to some understanding of paradox. That she or he returns with an understanding that life as they knew it can no longer be, and life as it is can be uncertain, but they are able to live inside of that uncertainty. And that's, a big, that's just one of the kinds of lessons but a big one that many, many protagonists um, shift towards in the course of, of a given journey. Um, so um, I would just like to ask if anybody here has a sense in their own novel, and very briefly, of what the departure for their character might be. What's a departure that one of your characters is taking? Myra. Well, in some way I'm describing it, 
Initiation. Anybody have a sense of sort of that long part of their plot that they're trying to sort out? Some of that? Yeah. Well, I was, I was going to go back to the, the unwilling departure is probably in the case of illness and their characters. Memoirs on the diagnosis. Diagnosis. And nobody ever wants to find out their HIV. That's such a good example. Such a good example. And fighting was proving against it, yeah. but you have to go. And, and, and sometimes the initiation actually can be the diagnosis as well. It gives the plot a bit, and one of my favorite definitions of plot I ever found online, it's actually Christine who showed this to me, um, is uh, a man who's written a ton of books, kind of adventure stories, and basically his advice is pile on the shit, and then pile it on higher and deeper. And it's sort of like the initiation phase is like that, that there's just like problem follows problem be, until they have had enough to figure out, oh, here's who I am inside of this, I can grab hold of some part of my nature and return with a sense of myself I did not have before. And whether we're writing fiction or memoir, I think that's an essential thing. Yes? fairy tales told in new ways. It's vast market out there. Vast. Because people want them turned on their ear, because they are often very, they're teaching values we don't want to teach to our children anymore. So... Right. Beautiful one. Right. Exactly. No. One of my favorites about Little Red Riding Hood, actually, is the one that's told in medieval France, again, comes down from um, oral tradition, where she says to the wolf, I have to pee. And she, he says, Ew, you do? And she says, yes, I do. And he says, no. She says, yes. He says, no. Yes. So he says, okay, but I'm going to tie this rope to you. So she says, okay. And he ties this rope to her, and then she ties the rope to a stump and runs off. 
It's just a whole different ending, and she's very clever. And then there's the William Golden version where she takes the pistol out of her purse and shoots the wall. You know, you can do it in a million different ways. So, yeah. Yes. Reclaiming a lost identity or forging one that's new, that has relations to the old, I think are very important. One of the things, um, um, well, there's a few more questions I saw. Yes. Well, I think, as I say, they are reflecting the horrors of life as it actually was. That was the effort. Um, for our own purposes, I think one of the great gifts that I take from studying the hero's journey, um, and whether it's reflected in the fairy tale or the, or the myth, um, hero's journey especially, though, is that whenever I'm going through sort of a hard time myself, I always think, you know, there's, there's the... The loss, of, the loss of something and the gain of something in this darkness, what am I taking with me out of this dark place that, is, that I can hold in the paradox of, of my life that, 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 that I return to in the return? I think there's something quite essential we can hold uh, in our own hearts about that, whether we're creating it for our characters or we're working on something for ourselves. The other day I was writing with a friend, uh, he played this song for me on his um, iPod in his car, and I just think it's a, uh, oh, this is my funny moment. <coughs> anyway, um, uh, but this is kind of, I think, a, um, a nice way because Joseph Campbell says, I love this, as far as I see it, he says, and he's got, he's, you know, he's got some patriarchal problems, but he's a, he's a very wise man in addition to that. But um, he says, as far as I see it, he says, a, a well-lived life is one hero's journey after another. 
So I think that's a great thing to bear in mind as we're just creating our tales and also telling them. One of the things I thought we would just look at Bruce Springsteen singing a section of, uh, of The Wrecking Ball, which is off his new album, and, um, uh, and hear these lyrics um, where, I'll turn it up in a minute, where he sings five times. He sings five times, hard times come and hard times go. So I just want us to hear this. And note that he is smiling while he is, and he's on a big stage while he's singing about his hard times. thing to remember when we create our stories, that that's that necessary descent in order to rise again is something that we're always working with. So 